0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, This is our anniversary, my wife and I, so she's talking right now. Yeah. So I don't know how many of you have met my wife, but this is Rebecca back here. So today is 38 years for us. So pretty fun. She had this deal, I I don't remember what year it was, I think it was before our 10th anniversary, she started, as soon as we'd we'd celebrate one anniversary, she'd say something like, so if it was our 8th anniversary, she'd say, only 42 more years until we've been married 50 years. So it started feeling like, oh, wow, that's forever away. Now it's 12 years, so it's starting to feel, if God gives us life, it might happen. We might get to 50. Actually, my parents... Um, we're going up there, they live in Canada, so we're going up to Canada to celebrate this summer their 65th wedding anniversary. So, um, I stand on the shoulders of people that have stayed married, which is a real gift for, for, for us. So anyways, happy anniversary to me. So, <laughs> and us, that's not, that's not what this is about. So I, I want to begin, um, by asking you to to just personally uh you might want to write this down but um reflect on a question that i think will help orient our minds to what i want to talk about i want you to think of um, a recent conflict that you had with someone or a time when you felt down so it could be either one of those Um, you know a conflict that you had, you don't have to write all out, but maybe, maybe one word, like the name of the person you had a conflict with or the situation that, you know, caused you. So I'm looking for you to to think of a time when there was, you were frustrated because of a conflict or, or problem with someone or a time when your emotions, you, you were feeling, you know, bad for some reason. It doesn't really matter what the reason was. Okay. So, We'll pause, let you think about what that is, get that in your mind. By the way, this is just for you. I'm not gonna ask you to go deal with the person you had a conflict with or tell them or anything. So this is just for you. Okay, now that you've hopefully got that in mind, I want you to, as best you can, so this is kind of testing your memory, so hopefully it's not too far ago, What were you thinking about yourself in that situation, in that time? This is going to take a little more time, so we're going to pause here and let you think a little more about this. Uh, You may want to start with emotions, because sometimes, especially in conflict or in emotional downtimes, we're more aware of what we felt than what we thought, but those feelings often lead to thoughts. So maybe, you know, in the conflict, what? You know what? What are you, What were you thinking? Not just in general about them or the situation. What were you thinking about yourself? And if you can't remember that, what were you feeling about yourself? So I'll take a moment for you to it'd be helpful. If you could write down you know, one or maybe two thoughts, what were you thinking about yourself? Okay, hey, everyone done introspecting. Okay, so my guess is is this. It's not gonna be true of every one of you. But my guess is that for probably most of us, when we get in a conflict with someone or when we are feeling down for whatever reason, we are probably not feeling uh, secure about who we are. We're probably not comfortable about ourselves. And whether you can articulate the words, um, you probably have a feeling of doubt about you or maybe even an accusation against yourself, or um, something that you're, you wish wasn't true of you, so you're probably not feeling secure or comfortable about who you are. Yeah, not in every case, but in, I think in most cases. I was in a, <clears throat> a doctoral class uh, last week, and the presenter was talking about conflict. And he said something and then kind of unpacked it that I think it was really accurate. Uh, he said that in most cases when there's conflict, it's um, driven not by the issue, not by the disagreement or the event, that is kind of the trigger, the spark of the conflict, but it's, it's really fueled and driven by uh, insecurity on the part of the people that are having conflict. So He basically said, secure people don't have conflict. When you feel insecure about yourself, that's when you get defensive. That's when you, you know, get into conflict. And I thought that that was a really good insight. So the reason I want you to think about this is because we're we're talking about uh, your identity, uh, what you think about yourself, yourself, what defines you as a person. The title is you know who do you think you are, but not in the who do you think you are, but who do you think you are. <laughs> Because you're always thinking something about yourself in the background, it's just kind of running whether you're uh, self-aware of it or not. You, you, we all carry with us uh, a view of ourselves, an image of ourselves. And so uh, the question about what your identity is, who, who do you think you are, is you know usually um, the way we identify ourselves uh, you know, has many answers to that question. Um, like, I would say I think I'm a pastor, because that's that's what I do uh, for, for work. Uh, I'm also a husband. I'm, I'm a father. Uh, I'm a grandfather. I'm a son. Um, I am a homeowner. I am a bike rider. <laughs> um, I'm an American citizen. I've mentioned some of you. I'm the only one in my family. Um, and the rest of them are Canadians. And the thing about Canadians is they are more fascinated by our politics than we are. So I'm always talking to my Canadian relatives about politics. So I almost feel like i am they're wanting me to vote for the whole entire family, whatever it is. But I'm an American citizen. Um, you know, another identifier I would have of me is is I think of myself as a, um, a, a good person. I don't think of myself as an evil person, Um, but that identifier has been shaken over the years when I run across someone that doesn't think I'm a good person because of something I've done that they disagree with or a decision or maybe something I've said, and that, that, you know, even though I'm pretty sure I I know I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and, and I know that I really want to grow and and grow as a person, still when someone says something negative about me or has a negative opinion about me, it, it doesn't just bounce off me. It kind of gets in there, and I begin to wonder, am I a good person? I thought I was, but this person seems to really think I'm not, so I don't know. The problem is that all of these answers, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm a good person, I'm a husband, and whatever it is, is—they they are superficial answers to the the deeper question. And the way I, <clears throat> I know that it's superficial is that when any of those self-identifiers are threatened or lost, uh, it, it shakes me. It um, concerns me, even though looking at me, most people wouldn't know. But on the inside, I'm, I'm scrambling. So clearly, my self-image is, is, is not anchored um, as deeply as it really needs to be if some person who gets upset with me can cause me to question myself. And two, the other problem with the superficial answers is life circumstances change. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, but what if I lost my job this year? You know, after 33 years of doing this? I, I hate to think about it, but I'd have to be honest and say, I'd, I'd be struggling. I mean, apart from finances and income, I'd be struggling to try to figure out, so who am I now? (laughs) Because I've worn the pastor label for so long. It would be hard for me to figure out, you know, how to to land on my feet. Um, You know, the older uh, Rebecca and I get, the more likely it is that um, one of us will die and the other one will have to go on. I mean, it's not too common that two married people just Exit together. Um, so we know a lot of people who have gone ahead of us that are dealing with that. And just by observation, it is a, you know, probably one of the most disorienting experiences that a person can have. After being married for a decade and coming home every day and processing the day with the same person and working together with the same person, all of a sudden you come home and it's hello, and there's no one there. So um, clearly we need an answer to this important question that goes deeper than what we do or what we own or even who we love, as important as that is. We need an anchor that can't be pulled up by the ever-changing circumstances of this life. So the truth is, and I think we would agree with this statement, is, is our value is deeper than what we do. I I am more than just a pastor, and you are more than a student with a particular major or a person with a particular career. You know that, I think, that you are are not the sum total of what you do. And I think we all know that we're not what we own. Um, Our value goes much deeper than anything that can be monetized. and we also know, I think, I hope you know this, that you're not what other people think of you. That may be helpful information, but no one can make a statement that is the sum total of, of your value. We're, we're not who people think we are. And, and, the, and the way um, human opinion is, is it's kind of like the free market. You know, Our value goes up and down based on what people think of us. But we are more than what other people think of us. And <clears throat> as important as marriage is, we're not who we are married to or not married to, as important as they are. So as long as something in this world um, answers the who are you question, our self-image, our view of ourselves is, is gonna be on, on shaky ground. We're just a set of circumstances away from being in an earthquake with our own sense of identity. So the question that I, I want to address this morning is, so how do we come up with a, a better anchored, more secure um, view of ourselves? You know, why, why can't we just look at ourselves in the mirror and declare our value? And that's one of the ideas that's out there is you, you just say positive things to yourself. You know, one of the songs that was up for the Oscar, uh, I just caught a a little listen to it, um, was was about women, and it was about the value of women, which is true and great, but the song was so bizarre in that it was, it had lines like, you know, applaud for yourself because you deserve it. Love yourself because you're valuable. And things like that. And so it was just like, how sad to be in a room all by yourself and... I mean, that's not going to make me feel better. But that's kind of what our our world has come to, is, is almost a set of hype mantras that you just say about yourself that's supposed to, it's almost like, you know, if you just chant it, you'll believe it, and it will make you feel better about yourself. So why can't we do that? Why can't we just look in a mirror and say, you're amazing, you can do anything today. You know. You add this, the phrase, why, why isn't that, that work for us? Well, it's because of how our self-image was formed. So the way we view ourselves has a history to it, not just a personal history, a history that starts all the way from the point that God created us the way he did and gave us the capacity to have a view of ourselves, to actually have a self-image, a thought about ourselves. So I want to go through uh, kind of three categories. So if we had PowerPoint, these these would be the three points. Let me just tell them so you can kind of know they're coming. I'll I'll let you know each one. But the first idea I want to talk about is um, how our self-image was formed, kind of the origin of our self-image, how we lost our self-image and then how God intends to restore, help us find our self-image. So it's kind of the three big categories we're gonna be talking about. So first of all, self-image formed, like where, where, where did this come from? Where do we get this self-image? This, and when I say self-image, uh, I wanna describe it as this need to establish our worth. So it's not just a neutral, here's what I think about myself, it's here's what I think about myself, And I would I would prefer to feel better about myself. I I want I want I desperately want to have real answers to my value. That that's our self image. So where where did that come from? Well, um, you can open your Bibles uh, again. Don't have PowerPoint uh, or open them in the phones or whatever. Or listen very closely as I read these to you. So we're going to look. We're going to start with Genesis because that's. Where we find some details about who we are on a soul level, which is where our self image resides. And I want to start with uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So, this is the first statement from God about the creation of humankind. And what we read in verse 27 of Genesis 1 is So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So down deep at the core of who we are are two things. First is we are made in the image of God. Second is that we are male and female. Those those are at the core of our identity. So I want to look this morning at at the made in the image of God part. So, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? That's an interesting uh, phrase, and there's a whole lot that's been written about that. But an image is an image of something. So an image points to the original object that it is an image of. So what this means is that we are... Uh, A secondary kind of life form, and God is primary. So we are secondary to God who is primary. Let me explain what I mean by that. So I'm going to use this flashlight. So I don't know if this is big enough. Originally I thought, oh, I have a whiteboard up here, but I think they're all being used. So this is my whiteboard. Um, So flashlight. Can you see my hand? Can you see the shadow? Okay. So the shadow is an image of my hand, okay? So as such, the shadow is not primary, right? It's secondary. And what I mean by that is I move my hand and my shadow moves. My shadow doesn't move and then I feel my hand moving because the shadow is secondary. It's dependent on the real solid me, that is being cast, the shadow is being cast by that. So that's what I mean by um, we are secondary and God is primary. So I move and my shadow follows, not vice versa. Now, they're both real. I don't think anyone would say, nah, that shadow is, you're seeing things. No, it's it's real. Um, But it's dependent on me. In other words, the shadow would not exist without me. it does not have the power to go and do its own thing. It's attached to me. So that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We are like a shadow of God that is cast on this world. The solid person that we are an image of is God himself. Now, both of us are real, but God is primary. We are secondary. He does not need us, but we do need him, just like my shadow needs me. So when I speak of having a self-image, that term makes as much sense as having a self-shadow. And I'll explain what I mean by that. There's no such thing as a self-shadow. And really, there's no such thing as a self-image. That is why we cannot declare our value on our own. We can't, with our own selves, say, I'm amazing, and we suddenly feel amazing. We have to point to something that proves that we really are valuable, and if we don't point to God, if we don't stand in the shadow of God, then we have to point to something else that we have raised to the level of importance that competes with God. So that's when we say, I'm a pastor, I'm a husband, I'm a... Part of what we do is we attach our value to something solid out there. Because we are, let me put it this way, we are shadows looking for something to stand next to. That's who we are at the core of who we are. And we can't declare our worth without having something we can point to to explain why we have something solid we can point to to say, that's why I'm valuable. We were designed to point to God and say, that's why I'm valuable. But in a broken world, That's not enough for us now. So we're looking for something else in in the middle of a sinful world. And we'll look at that a little bit more in in a bit. Now, the biggest difference between my shadow that was here on this, this little piece of wood and God's shadows, which is us, is that God made his shadows solid. He gave us bodies. So we are created in the image of God. But because he made us solid and gave us free wills, this means that even though we're made in God's image, we can walk away from God. My shadow can't walk away from me. It, it has no will. It's not solid. It has no soul. It can't make a decision. But we can decide to turn our backs on the one whose image we bear, and go it alone. That's really what sin is. is that sin is the decision to say, you know, I'm, I'm tired of standing in the shadow of what God says is right. I'm going off road. I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do. And we've all done that. But when we do that, and we've all done that, we lose our sense of worth. Because we were never designed to be primary. We were never designed to be independent. We are always designed to be secondary. So we can choose to walk away from God, but what we cannot do is choose to feel good about that, to feel good about ourselves without God. So without God, we must find something other than God to point to in order to feel valuable. The problem is that nothing other than God is primary. Another way of saying it, nothing other than God is primary big enough for our shadow to fit next to.
1: Nothing is big enough to establish our value
0: other than God. So, the only other you know, the only kind of lasting image that we can have of ourselves really is God's image. But we've lost that. So that's that's kind of the next idea. How how did that occur? How did we lose our self-image, our sense of value? Well, it started with the first image bearers, Adam and Eve, when they sinned and they started this separation from God. They were the first shadows to bolt. And ever since then, every shadow that is of their descendants, which is all of us, we are born separated from God. Uh, Genesis 3.7 says something interesting. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, so they partake of the forbidden fruit, that moment as image bearers, they're deciding they no longer want to follow the one, the solid one of whom they are shadows of. This is the first thing that is said about them after they sin. Genesis 3.7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves." Now, I remember when I first read that, I was like, how do you not realize that you're naked? I mean, how does that happen? And and it's a surprising thing, really. So sin enters the world. The first people sin, and the first thing they realize about themselves is, oh my goodness, we're naked. And so they go scramble to find covering for themselves. Now, the only time that you get a glimpse of maybe what Adam and Eve were like before they sinned is um, with little kids. If you've had little kids, you know that they're fully capable of running around the house completely naked and they're unaware of it. You know, you have to actually teach them, okay, people are coming over, we're not running around naked when our friends are here, okay? And as they get older, they become more self-aware, right? See, because when they're young, they're, they're, they're innocent. They don't have a sense of self. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's naked them. Same, they have the same view of themselves as clothed, clothed to them. But as they get older and their innocence begins to diminish, which is always sad as a parent when you begin to realize, ah. Oh, they're encountering the sin of others and they're encountering their own sin. But they then, like Adam and Eve and the rest of us, start wearing clothes. But the point is not the clothes, the point is what was going on on the inside of them. You know, Adam and Eve were totally innocent and comfortable with who they were in the presence of God. So much so that they didn't even realize they were naked. But the moment they sinned, the first thing to change was how they saw themselves. Their sense of self, their self-awareness changed. And that's because the moment they separated themselves from God, they, they cut anchor with what their true value is resting in. And that choice has affected every image bearer since then, which is all of us. Every descendant of Adam and Eve is now born into a world that has declared its independence from God. For a short time, as young children, we feel the innocence of childhood, but it doesn't take long for the effects of this separation to show up in our choices and then in a struggle to establish our self-worth. This is why so much emphasis is placed on trying to build up and establish the self-esteem of a child. But trying to build a self esteem isn't the solution. It's really only the acknowledgement of the problem. Because we really don't have, as I've said, we don't have a self worth. We have a shadow worth. That's who we are. We have a shadow worth. Our value is established by what we stand next to or in the shadow of. It was supposed to be God's shadow. But without him we need to find something big enough like I've said to stand next to before in order for us to feel better about ourselves. But any sense of worth, any sense of self-value that is not attached to God is a false sense of worth. In other words, it's going to eventually fail us. We're going to eventually see it's not big enough. It'd be like me trying to hide behind this music stand. You know, the outline of this music stand I mean, I'm, I'm bigger than this. So I, I can't find shade, I can't find comfort, I can't hide myself with a music stand. Because my self, my, my shape is larger than this. And that's being made in the image of God. The outline of our soul, is larger than anything that we can stand next to in this world anyone we can stand next to in this world they're just not they're not big enough because we've got a god-sized shadow so this is why being a pastor for 33 years isn't enough being married for 38 years isn't enough good it's great it's fine it's not bad but it's not enough for me to come to an accurate sense of worth and value. So it's only a matter of time before the real me is exposed behind whatever I'm hiding behind and my sense of value crumbles. This is just true of all of us. So I want want you to pause again and, and go back and think about that conflict or that emotional struggle, whichever of the two you chose. And review again what it is you were thinking about yourself, or if you can't think of the thoughts, what you are maybe feeling about yourself in that moment. And then I want you to ask this question as another following question to what you already thought about. What is it that you were standing next to that moved and left you exposed? What is it that you think you were standing next to that shifted or changed or moved and left you exposed, feeling less valuable and not sure of yourself? What, what do you think that was? I'll give you some time to just think about that. If you're, if you're having a hard time figuring out what it was that moved, let me give you some categories that might help. It was probably, a person, a thing, or an accomplishment. So it was probably like, for example, in marriage. When my wife and I have conflict, it is a, it feels like an earthquake in my soul. Because there's no one who I care more about and what they think of me And at the point of conflict, they're not thinking great thoughts about me. And that sends both of us into this, you know, are we valuable? Are we important? And so whatever the issue was that caused the conflict almost disappears as we begin to fight for our own sense of value and worth. And what we're really saying to each other is, will you approve of me again so I can get I can feel better about myself. So what moved? Probably some person turned on you or disappointed you. Maybe it was something, something of value. Uh, Maybe it was an accomplishment or, or a question of, you know, someone questioned whether what you thought you accomplished was really as valuable as you thought it was. So now let's turn our attention to self-image found. So we've done self-image formed, like how, how we, why it is we have this sense of self, where that came from, how we lost the ability to feel our worth and value all by ourselves, why we have to stand next to something or someone to feel better about ourselves. And now we're gonna to turn to God's plan for restoring our self-image. So how can we find or regain our lost and damaged self-image? Conventional thinking is that you begin with you. You uncover the experiences in your past that have damaged your sense of worth. Maybe parents that treated you poorly, said awful things to you, or occasionally said hurtful things to you. Um, And so you return to the hurtful moments that really have, you know, damaged your sense of value. And the thought is is if you can go back and process those correctly, that what will return is a healthy view of yourself. Now these, these are fine things to do and they actually can help some. But what I would propose is they're still not enough. Because even if your parents really did affirm and value you, or even if you're able to go back and process the hurt of them not valuing you, what your parents think of you is still not enough. Because you have a God-sized image, not a parent-sized image. So the problem with this approach is that the, the real damage goes deeper than anything that's happened to us in our past. So you have to begin with God, where the problem started. And it goes all the way back, as I said, to Adam and Eve. So there's really only one ultimate solution to our self-image problem. And that is Jesus Christ. And the reason is because he is the only one who can reattach our shadows to God. I don't know if you remember the Peter Pan story. Do you know why Peter Pan left Neverland? He was in search, search of what? His shadow. And he goes into the kids' you know, bedroom, catches his shadow. Wendy wakes up, and what is Peter Pan doing? He's trying to sew his shadow back onto himself. And Wendy says, oh, Peter, don't you know that shadows can't be sewed on? (laughs) Now I don't know if the writer of that story had any idea of the self-image stuff, but it's an interesting image of really what our problem is. We're trying to catch a shadow, a God-sized shadow, and then we're trying to sew it onto ourselves. Problem is, no thing in this life can be sewed onto us and fit us. And so Jesus came,
1: took on a body, a human shadow. He lived a perfect
0: life, the exact outline of God, because he was God, the exact moral outline of God, then he died and rose again. And now he says, let's sew that shadow back on. If you want to read more about this, this is really the theme of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, six chapters but it's, it's about all the identifiers that become true of us when we attach our lives to Jesus Christ. And okay. this new identity that we find in Christ is not just added to all of our other identities, it becomes the foundation of how we view ourselves, our life. So in other words, we're not just fathers and mothers and homeowners and students who happen to be Christians. It's the other way around. We are followers of Jesus Christ who happen to be fathers and mothers and homeowners and students. And the phrase that's repeated over and over again in Ephesians that describes this shadow reattachment is we are in Christ. That's the phrase that's used. It's mentioned 14 times in Ephesians, more times throughout the New Testament. In fact, I would, that's an interesting study. Just look up all the verses in the New Testament that reference in Christ. The question is, what does it mean to be in Christ? So here's Ephesians 1.3, if you want to look it up. Um, This is what it says, Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are in Christ. So after some brief introductions, this is how the book begins. Every spiritual blessing that God has for those of us are found in Christ. Why in Christ? Why not next to Christ? Why not delivered by Christ? It's because we need our shadows reattached to the one who created us in his image. We can't just decide to return to God. I mean, that's a good decision, but that's not going to reattach our shadows. Why? It's because the separation caused by our sin has changed the shape of our shadows, of us. Not our bodies, but our souls. The moral outline of our life no longer resembles the moral outline of God. And the the thing about shadows is they can't just be approximate representations of the solid image. They've got to be exact representations. They have to exactly fit the outline of the object that they are a shadow of. Okay, so let's go back to the flashlight. See if I can help this make sense. Um, okay, so what is this the shadow of again? My hand, right? What is this the shadow of? A pen. They are very different outlines, right? So, let's just say the hand represents the outline of Jesus Christ. God in flesh, living a perfect life. That's what you see. Now let's take, let's say we're the pen. This is is our moral outline. Not nearly as impressive or big as that. What happens when you put the pen inside the hand? What do you see? The hand, you don't see the pen. Did the pen cease to exist? No. What happened? The outline of Jesus Christ, his moral outline, covers the outline of my life. That's what it means to, the pen is in my hand. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's why it can't be next to, it has to be in Christ. So, when you decide to follow Jesus Christ, you are deciding to place your life inside the, uh, the, the outline of his life. So when it comes to trying to reattach our shadow to God, we really have two options. Try to change the moral shape of our lives so that we can fit the image of God, or step into the shadow of the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Obviously. One is possible and one is impossible. We can't contort ourselves. This pen can't contort itself to the shape of my hand. It just can't do that. I, can't, I can work really hard to be better, but I cannot will myself to the outline of God. I just can't do that. So how does one become in Christ? The way I explain it, most often is it's captured in the two words that are most said about Jesus. They're the first two words that are said about Jesus by the angels to the shepherds on the night that he was born. This is what it says in Luke 2, 11, Today in the town of David, a savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Those two words, savior and Lord. That's what it means to attach your life to Christ, to be in him. He becomes your savior. What that means is you decide to stand in his moral shadow before the Father. You admit that you're a pen, you're not good enough. You can never get to the moral outline of your life to fit with what it should be. Only he can forgive your penness, your sin, and qualify you to spend eternity with God. And he becomes your Lord. While you are this shape, you decide, to live in the outline of what God says. You don't do it perfectly, we don't do it perfectly, but we decide to follow Jesus as our Lord. We we work to walk in the shadow of Jesus. So your top goal is to stay as close to him as you can. And if you venture off, you get back on track. So what that means practically is the Bible becomes your guide. Because you know what the Bible is? Shadow instructions. It's basically God's character, his outline, what he thinks about who we are and how we should treat each other and how we should interact in our world. The Bible is not just a set of instructions that for us to consider. It is the shape of our soul because it's the shape of God's character. So then this answers the question, who do you think you are? You are in Christ. So when hard things come and when people question you and when you question yourself, you at least have an answer. You at least have something solid to run to to remind yourself, this is why I'm okay. This, I don't need to fight. I don't need to defend myself because I am in Christ. And when God the Father looks at me, he sees the moral outline of the perfect Christ.
1: That's, that's amazing. That's reason to turn any bad day into a good day.
0: So let me pause here and just open it up for some questions on this because I've basically a theology of self-image, so this is Christian Psych 101, I guess, so it's a lot. So, questions you might have about this, or not might, do have about this?
1: Yeah? Thank you, Bevan. And kind of just a question to clarify the, the illustration. If, if God is the hand um, and we're the shadow, and you mentioned we often try to you know, have shadow captures that are equal achievements. Right. Or things like that. Is God not only the hand, but also the surface that catches the shadow?
0: I don't know if question really makes sense. Like the whiteboard. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, so God is the hand. This is just, uh, this is how we, this would be how we view ourselves. Okay. So this this would be kind of the, the mirror, I guess, that we, when we, we think of ourselves, see ourselves. Yeah. So we, we try to get another shadow to hide behind so that we can view, so we can look at the, the basically the screen, the board, and say, okay, I feel better about myself. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Analogies can be tricky, because it's like, so. and what is this metal? Like, I don't know. So, yeah. <laughs> That is a great question. And I will address that next. So we'll give you a star. You're the student that anticipated where I was going next. So well done. So hold that thought. Any other questions? I want to make sure you know we're kind of it's maybe some new ideas for you. So if you have questions about it, I'm not sure of what I mean by this.
1: Not be absolutely a necessary question, but how do you, how does um know, how does evaluating like strengths and weaknesses play into like like sometimes like oh like finding weaknesses can also kind of affect work and that kind of stuff, but I would assume you wouldn't say oh you reflect all of God's strengths in all the exact same way because we're yep. different, so how would you kind of play that into that kind of image of
0: stuff if that makes sense? Yeah, so strengths and weaknesses would be you know like so. There's some good things about this pen. There's some things that are not a deal about this pen, just like our lives. But it's it's what what I'm trying to say is whatever the strengths and weaknesses are, that does not fundamentally change your value if you're in Christ. Whereas if you're all by yourself, strengths and weaknesses are attached to value. And so a lot of times people will try to grow so that they can feel better about themselves. We don't grow so that we can feel better about ourselves. We grow because we have been saved and we want to live. We've decided Jesus, we want to live. But but if we fail, that doesn't mean now our value has gone down. So strengths and weaknesses are a pen question, not a value question. Does that make sense? Now, again, that's that's tricky because the truth is, if I'm growing, I feel better about myself. But it's because I'm trying to stand next to my moral outline and then there's going to be the day where it's like, "Oh, I don't feel so good about myself. <laughs> you know, so my value, my, my sense of worth is, but if we can really anchor ourselves in Christ, then our, our emotions and the way we treat people can become more stable because we're not adding to it. Could you validate me? Could you help me feel better about myself? Again, no, none of us say that, but a lot of times in conversation, that's really what we're doing. We're, we're fishing for a compliment. We're, we're, we're desperately longing for someone to say something that would make us feel better about ourselves, and that keeps us from loving people because then we're using them to help them us feel better about us. But if we're in Christ, I can, my, you know, my sense of worth is full. I, I don't need you to add anything to it. So now, I now I can love you because I don't need you. I love you, but I don't need you to feel better about me.
1: Deep stuff, huh?
0: It'd be great if life wasn't so fast, we went from one, if we could just pause and say, wait, let me get my head back on here. (laughs) Started thinking, so. But that gets to the the question we're gonna look at. How do you do this? My wife has a question. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Don't make me feel bad about myself, that's right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's why we're told, like, 1 Corinthians one thirty one is, you know, we are commanded, you know, uh, to boast in the Lord, not boast in ourselves. The reason we boast in ourselves, again, is we're, we've been in the shadow lands. <laughs> we're looking for some validation. Boasting in the Lord means, you know, I'm standing next to him. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't think so um, any more than it would be to compliment a, a Christian because, you know, even though I am in Christ, I can till, still take a compliment and, and allow that to mean more than it should. So, with someone who's not a follower of Jesus Christ, you know, it's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit that will draw them to Christ. It's not going to be. Um, you, know, you you don't want to be an agent of, I'm going to make sure you feel so bad about yourself. So, you know, that's a, by by withholding, a you know, an encouraging statement or compliment, you know, is obviously, I think if I follow logic is, you know, we don't want to encourage a false sense of self-worth. And so is this doing that? It's like, well, um, maybe, but they're going to find it every, any other place they can. And so it's the Holy Spirit that's going to convict them. And I don't need to withhold good gifts, you know, as a part of that strategy. Does that that answer your question? Yeah. That's a good question. Melinda?
1: Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's great. That's a great idea. Yeah, you're exactly right. Because then you're you're pointing to the solid image God, from which that gift came, rather than just Making it seem like it's intrinsically them. Right. That's really good. Great idea. Yep. yeah I, I would not present this to them. Um, <laughs> other than, I think, I think that I, I always think that the most powerful thing is what God has done in your life, just your story and my story. So if you're close enough and if the conversation makes sense, I think it makes sense for you to just say, "You know, I, I really struggle with the same feelings. I've, I've had a hard time, you know getting over feeling really bad about myself and, and, you know, the thing that really has helped me most is, you know, the decision I made to follow Jesus Christ. And then you could, you could add a couple sentences that might explain some of this. You know, the the reason that helps is it's not, you know, it's not just a set of rules. It's not just a blind step of faith. It's, you know, it's because what's offered is, Um, a reattachment to the one that created me. And a part in my, you know, I I know you don't believe in God, but obviously I do. And for me, that's, that's where my worth and value comes from. You know, just so they can identify, so you can identify with the struggle because we all struggle with self-worth. We all feel bad about ourselves. That's part of what was encouraging to me years ago when I realized everybody, wonders about themselves. Even the people that look so together and so confident down deep inside, they're struggling. So you identify with what they're struggling with, and then you point to the answer that you found, which is different than their answer. And God might use that in a point where they realize, my answer is not working. But my friend has a different answer. I might have some more questions about that. So I I would just embed the ideas in your own personal story as appropriately as you can, just your own testimony. Yeah. Good. So that's partly what I'm going to deal with next, but I'll add a little something to it before we get into it. I think, you know, the truth out of Scripture um, is the best antidote to the lies. Because we, you know, the enemy, we have an enemy, Satan himself, and he loves to, you know, lie to us about our value and our worth. And so God's word is the truth that defeats those lies. But what I will say before I get into a of subscription that I would recommend that you go to, that I have used to go to to kind of reset my sense of value is and this is kind of related to the comment I said is it would be great if life didn't move so fast. If we could just go from thought to thought and reflect on it and then decide, okay, now here's what I'm going to say, but life just happens so fast. Uh, you know, when we're done with this, we're going to have lunch, and I don't know what we're eating, but you're going to be standing in line, and you're not going to be thinking, I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ. You're going to be thinking, yeah, it's a long line. I'm hungry. you know. And then you're going to be looking at someone and saying, huh, that's an interesting outfit choice. I wonder why they did that. And then you're going to, you know, so your mind's just going to be going all over the place. You're not going to be thinking in Christ, in Christ, in, I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ, you know. And... You're gonna wake up in the morning and not even remember your name for like the first minute or two, you know? So <laughs> just the way it is, is, is that we have to, so I would, I would say when I think negative emotions are like that red light on the dash of the car, it's an opportunity to pull over, pop the hood and spend at least five minutes reflecting if you can. You can keep driving <laughs> but usually more red lights go on and eventually the thing just breaks down. So I think God has given us emotions to let us know, Hey, 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 something's going on here. So I have found it to be helpful and I'll admit oftentimes I'm just busy. and I'm just like plowing through and it's not until two, two days later. I'm like, Oh wow. But it's really helpful just to pause and reflect. That's part of what a daily quiet time does. But life happens even faster than that so if you can just pause and, and just say okay what's what's going on here what am i thinking and then if you can't think of these categories is how was i trying to make something else the solid image in which i'm standing next to was it this person was it this project was it what was it so but that takes time to reflect so let me just share um so what I've said is true and it's been life changing for me to come to understand these truths of what it means to be in Christ. But I can still find myself feeling bad about myself and wondering if God is okay with me. Why? It's because I can't, you know, this is a I can't see this with my eyes. <laughs> I mean, I've often thought if I could just see a glimpse of the face of Jesus and see the thought of my name come across his mind and a smile come to his face, I'd be good. If I could just physically see that, man, wouldn't that, I think I'd be good for life, especially if I could, you know, do a selfie with Jesus smiling at me, then I could store it <laughs> and then I could look at it. But I can't see a smile on Jesus' face. When I see him face-to-face, face, I'm looking forward to the smile. But right now, it's just an imagination. And so I have to bring it to mind. And I have, because it's, it's true, but it's not visible, it requires repetition. So I have to keep bringing this reality back in front of my mind. That's what I was saying about reflection. So for me, personally, I have memorized Romans chapter 8 Tell me with this. So start with one verse. And expand, I would encourage you. But let me just go through a few verses that really help me. Romans 8:31. This is just amazing. What then shall we say in response to this? All that Jesus has done for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So what this is saying is God is for us, not in a you know thumbs up kind of way, but in a I will spare nothing. I will spare nothing in terms of paying for you. I will even allow my son to take on a body as humbling as that would be and was. And I will allow that body, my son, to be beaten and killed. Why? For you. So someone in the flow of your day decides they don't like you. And they maybe, maybe even make moves against you? Who are they in comparison to that? The God who has been thinking about you and then sent his son to die for you and has a standing policy of giving you whatever it will take to be of real long-term help to you, that God is for you. But who's against you? Well, I can't even remember now. It just doesn't even matter now. What someone else thinks about you or me is swallowed up completely in what God thinks of you and has demonstrated in history for you. So what I say to myself is, I better be really careful to put someone down for whom God is for. And who's that someone? Me. I better stop putting myself down. Because what I'm saying is, God, I, I know you love me. I know you sacrifice for me. But what I think of me carries more weight. like No, it doesn't. You know, when it comes to, you know, what you need, you know, what's the thing you need? God says, you know, if he gave you, if I give you my son, how will I not also along with him give you all things? So if, you, if there's something that you think you need and God hasn't given it to you, you know what that means? You don't need it. Because God will give you, if he's given you his son, He's paid the ultimate price. He's not going to go cheap on you now. Romans 8.33, another one. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding, which means pleading for us. So, Who's the one condemning you? I mean, does a name come to your mind? Someone that's said something about against you or questioned you? What's their evidence against you? Quite possible they've got some good evidence against you. Okay, this is kind of saying, all right, so let's kind of have a courtroom moment here. You know, the kind of courtroom scene that there's a lot of drama. You know, the prosecution's been bringing one evidence after another, and there's this, oh no! kind of stuff that's been going on, you know, videos of what you've done, transcripts of what you've said. Worst of all, there's actually a record of what you've thought. And worst, worst of all, apparently there's going to be a record of our motives. Oh my goodness, you add motives to it? We're in trouble. It's looking really bad. The plea of not guilty would be met with courtroom laughter. The evidence is so overwhelming. So now let's let's enter into evidence, the death of Jesus, which by faith you have brought to your trial as evidence. But wait, not only did Jesus die for every one of those thoughts and motives and words and deeds and videos, but He now has given his perfect life in exchange for yours. Not only did he do that, he he walked out of the tomb. That's what he's talking about. To prove that he is in fact God in flesh. So again, what's the evidence against you? Who is he he that condemns? Who's going to bring any evidence that will surpass that? No one. So... The judge declares you innocent because of the fact that you've decided to bring the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf as evidence into the courtroom. But wait, that's not all. Jesus didn't just rest his case and go sit at the right hand of God. He sits there to plead for you. I mean, that's happening right now. Literally, right now, Jesus is saying, Father, I know Bevan's motives were off in that. I know Bevan just said that. But I died for Bevan. So I'm just here to remind you that mercy is what Bevan gets. I mean, it's just... I mean, how can you take five minutes and read through that and not have a chance at regaining perspective? Then the last one I'll read is Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. You know, Sometimes life feels like that. It's like we're just lining up to be slaughtered. <laughs> No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors, not us, through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither heights nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is, what is it? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what set of circumstances can ever occur to break you free from this thinking about you constantly, dying for you, pleading for you, holding on to you with a grasp that no one can ever break kind of God. Nothing's going to separate God's love for you in Christ. So who who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? I'm in Christ. I belong to him not because of anything I've done, but what he did with my actual name on his mind. So for me, for us, this is personal. He's got
1: my heart. This isn't just
0: religion. This isn't a set of rules. This is life. So Romans 8 is just a reset passage for me. Feeling really bad feeling really defensive, feeling really discouraged. It's time for the reset passage. So to answer the question, how do you apply this? You have to bring this before your mind over and over again. I would recommend you build a pattern of memorizing and working on this, but then I would also recommend that in the moments of emotional struggle, stop. Don't just keep plowing on. Stop. Even if it's for five minutes. And review one of these verses. Cry out to God and help him show you who you really
1: are in Christ. So, hope that's helpful. That's it. Thanks, everyone. Lunch is next.